I appreciate you guys uh, leading us this weekend. They can't hear me because they can't. Thanks. And I appreciate the fact that the, our creative team tries to come up with unique ways like this to uh, just get us outside of kind of our comfort zone a little bit and uh, help us express some things that are in our hearts. Uh, you know, for a lot of us, uh, and this was true to a degree for me and maybe some of you growing up, uh, my approach to Christianity was kind of like a Simon Says game, but instead of a Simon Says, it was Jesus Says. Jesus Says, go to church. Jesus says, take communion. Jesus says, pray. Check her out. Oops, she didn't say to check her out. I wasn't supposed to do that. Sorry, I'm out. Um, I learned uh, growing up in church, it was hard to stay in the game. And then you'd get out, you know, you'd do something you weren't supposed to do, and you'd feel all guilty about it. And, and yet part of you was kind of relieved that you were out. And you, you kind of would think, you know, I'm out. I don't have to play for a little while. That's good. And in fact, it's hard to play the game. And who can do all the stuff that Jesus says? perfectly and, and you kind of didn't want to think this way but you'd almost think well maybe now that I'm out and I've kind of blown it and, and I've sinned and I'll just kind of enjoy it out here for a while get all my sinning done God's mad at me anyway I'm already out and just kind of be in that state another problem with the Jesus says game is that periodically in church you would meet people who appeared to be really really good at the game I mean they could just stay in the game forever and you'd think, oh, I can never be as good as they are at the game. It was discouraging. And you'd find yourself back in church after a season maybe and uh, you hear convicting sermon or the guilt would begin to pile up a little bit and you'd say, okay, fine, I'm going to get back in the game. I'm going to try to do all the stuff that Jesus says, read my Bible, pray, give 10%, don't date her, lose his number. I'm going to try to stay in a little longer this time before I get kicked out. Another thing, you know, sometimes growing up, I would meet people who, who never played the Jesus game ever. I mean, they were not church people. It was like they didn't care, and they just kind of did what they wanted to do. They were like out of the game, but they were okay with it. And there was a part of me that thought, you know what, they really need to play this game because they're going to be in trouble someday. But also, and I didn't want to say this out loud, but there was a part of me that was like a little bit jealous that they didn't have to play the game. I mean, they didn't seem to have any guilt. And then I was told in church I was supposed to go tell these po folks about the game and invite them to play the Jesus Says game. And part of me was like, why would they want to play the game? I mean, they've got it easy. And, and in fact, some of you may be here this morning and maybe you're not a churchy person or you were w for a while than you weren't. And one of your problems with religion is that you were in it for a while and you were kind of, you were forced in it and then you dropped out and the issue is you thought, who wants to play a lifelong game of do what Jesus says? And maybe you were forced in it by your parents or by your teachers and you're not sure you ever wanted to be there but you didn't have a choice. And there didn't seem to be any joy in it and all the people around you who were older that had been playing the game for years, they seemed to be joyless and kind of stodgy and you thought, I don't have any desire to be like them. They seem miserable. Why, why go through all the trouble? But what many of us missed is that Christianity is not a game of Jesus says or God says or the church says or the preacher says or the priest says. Christianity at its essence is a relationship with us, finite human beings, and an infinite God. It's all about relationship. In fact, when Jesus came to this earth, the reason he came was because really the whole earth, every religious system that was on planet earth, if you boiled it down, 
in one version or another. It was just God, you know, a game of God says, or God says this, or Jesus says that, or, you know, whatever. You just had to keep these rules, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And then Jesus shows up and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. You guys have missed the point. This isn't a God says or Jesus says game or anybody else says. This is supposed to be a relationship. And if you miss that, if you miss that, Jesus says you missed the point. Jesus came to this earth to teach us all about a relationship. In fact, if it was all about a Jesus says game, then Jesus would have showed up with a list of things that we had to do, a list of do's and don'ts. But he didn't. In fact, that frustrated the religious people of his day because they always came to him wanting his list. And he didn't have a list. Instead, he just gave a simple invitation. See, if you approach your relationship with God with a list, with a list of do's and don'ts and thou shalt's and thou shalt nots, that would be kind of like approaching marriage with, with a list. And you know, when we get married, there is a set of vows, but you don't get up, at least you shouldn't, every morning of your marriage with your list of vows and going over them again, I have to work really hard to keep these today. I'm going to, you know, it's going to take every bit of willpower I have. I hope I can do this. I'm going to try to keep these vows today. I mean, what if our focus of marriage was all about keeping the rules of marriage? That's not marriage. In fact, it, it's probably not really a good thing to be committed to marriage. I mean, I know what people mean when they say that, and I know they mean something good, but I don't want my wife to be committed to marriage. I want her to be committed to me, to love me. This is really important. God doesn't want us to be committed to a religion, to a religious system, Christianity, as a, as a religious movement. Rather, he wants us to be in a relationship with Jesus. That's the central point of this whole series. When Jesus was on this earth, he was always trying to get us to understand the relational nature of this whole thing. And he would give us images to help us understand the relational nature. And these, some of these don't make sense to us because of our day and age and our culture. But one of the relationships he talked about was the relationship between a sheep and a shepherd. Think about like the relationship a person has with their dog. I mean, that was kind of the idea that the sheep knows the shepherd's voice. The shepherd will protect the sheep, feed the sheep, care for him. There's a relationship there. He talked about the relationship between a father and a child. We understand that one. He talked about the relationship, this one's a little weird for some of us, between a vine and a branch. I mean, that sounds strange, but the idea was it's connected. The life is flowing from one to the other. The branch can't survive without the vine. And in all those things, it's a relationship. It's organic. It's not about rules or lists. It's, it's one image or another about relationship. There's, a, there's a one image that Jesus used most often. It's probably the simplest form that he talked about. And it's through all of his teaching in all four Gospels. And it's one we're going to take a look at the next few weeks. And if we can get this as a church, I believe it will move us just far, farther we need away, forever away, from the rules and lists and religion idea and take a smack into the realm of relationship where God intends us to be. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9, one of the Gospels, Matthew 9. If you don't, just take the little insert out of your bulletin. The text is there as well as some, a little bit of an outline. In this passage, Jesus uses uh, two words for the very first time, at least in this gospel, and then he uses them throughout his ministry to explain and give a context for this brand new approach to God that Jesus initiates. Matthew chapter 9, just going to walk through the next few verses, just a couple verses here, starting in verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Now, um, this is the same Matthew who wrote this gospel. This is his, a little bit of his own story. And I've explained this before, but I'm just going to review it just a second for those of you who may not be familiar with what a tax collector is in this day and age. But the Romans were the occupying empire of this day. They occupied most of the known world, North Africa, Europe, uh, part of Asia. 
And um, they smartly, actually, didn't collect taxes by using their own people to collect taxes from these countries they occupied. They would use the local people because they knew the language and the customs. And so what would happen is the local people would bid on the right to be a tax collector. And no one would know exactly what they would bid, but they would say, I I can collect this much taxes from this region. And whoever had the highest bid, the Romans would choose. And then anything they would raise above and beyond that, they could keep for themselves as like a fee. And they would set themselves up at a bridge or an intersection or a market. And, And the implications of being a tax collector were pretty simple but profound. They were making money off of their own people. They were helping an occupying army, which was a bad thing. So they were social and political outcasts. Their family would turn away. What's more, they were around Gentiles all the time, so they were considered defiled, and so they could not go to the temple and worship in the practice of the Jewish people. They couldn't offer sacrifices, which means that they were unable to make themselves right with God. So in essence, they had made a very clear and conscious decision to sell out God and their family and their nation for money. In fact, the Jewish people had a whole category of, for them. It was sinners and tax collectors. I mean, they were the lowest of the low in their culture by choice. So Jesus went on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting in a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he, said, he, fought, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And this is pretty shocking. I mean, the group with Jesus, around Jesus, w- would be basically saying, Jesus, I, I don't know what you're, gonna, what you're doing here, but I mean... You, we would imagine you'd say to Matthew, you should change, you should clean up your act, you should get yourself right, but instead you say, follow me. I mean, remember for the disciples that are already following, follow me means follow we. I mean, now you're a part of our group, and I don't want that guy in our group, Jesus. But Jesus invited him, and Matthew responded and followed. And there's probably a lot of things that Matthew could have invited him to do. He could have invited him to die for him, and Matthew would have said, no, nah, that's fine, I'll keep collecting taxes. He could have said, give everything away. Matthew would, nah, I'm good. I'll just keep collecting taxes. But he didn't say that. He just asked him to, a very simple invitation. Follow me. No list, no demands, just an invitation. And I love that because that's the same invitation that's given to us every day of our lives. It's not an invitation for us to clean up our act or make a lot of changes. It's not an invitation to play the Jesus says game, the church says game, the God says game, to, to do a lot of thou shalt or thou shalt nots. It is an invitation that's, in, that's extended uniquely and, and entirely to us, right where we are in that moment. Just follow me. Not how well are you doing at the game, not how well are you doing compared to other people, just a simple question, am I following Jesus? Now, it's interesting, there are some folks watching this exchange, and they're very disturbed by this. They're the Pharisees, and they make, they're the kind of people in their culture, they made playing the God says game look very doable. They were professional game players. It was all about religion for them, and they were very disturbed. And they said, how can you ask a person like Matthew who's totally failed at the game? He's not religious. He's not righteous. How can you ask him to follow you? Don't you need to first ask him to clean up his act or to get himself straightened out and then follow? Jesus, you got it backwards. I mean, Jesus, he's got to have some outward evidence of righteousness and religiousness before he's in, right? I mean, that's the way it's always worked. Verse 10. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And we're not sure how this all came about. I mean, Matthew gets up to follow Jesus, and they're walking along, presumably, a little bit. Finally, he says, hey, Jesus, I'm following you now. Where are we going? Your house. All right. What are we going to do there? We're going to have a party. 
Well, this following Jesus stuff is pretty easy. I mean, I get to go to my own house and I get to have a party. I mean, it's a lot easier than trying to play the God says game that the Pharisees are always trying to get us to do. And it says the many tax collectors and sinners, I mean, actually translated as those who are sinning, I mean, their, their lifestyle is far from God, far from the way God would want it to be probably. They're all there in the mix. And you've got to know how really uncomfortable and unsettled this makes the religious people of Jesus' day. When the Pharisees, verse 11, saw this, they asked his disciples, why did your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, he's supposed to say, change your life, get right with God, start the thou shalts and thou shalt nots, then you can join me. Why would he publicly associate with people before they've made any changes in their lives? And this is backwards. This is one of the reasons that some of us have had seasons of our life, and maybe you're there right now, where you've shied away from God. And you say things to yourself like, you know what, I know I need to get back in church, I know I need to get back with God, but I'm just going to make some changes in X, Y, Z part of my life. And as soon as I do that, when I do that, then I'll come to church, then I'll come back to God. And Jesus says, look, you're not hearing me. I'm not asking you to get fixed up and then come to me. I'm just asking you wherever you are in your current state to follow me. Verse 12, on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. In other words, I came for the sake of people, not some God says game. But go and learn what this means. And that was a very offensive statement because the, the Pharisees thought they knew everything there was to know about the Old Testament. So go and learn means you're ignorant. So go and learn. You're ignorant about this. And he quotes Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And what he's saying is, I, I don't want a bunch of automatons, people who just follow the rules. Uh, rather, I want people who reflect the very nature of God. God is a God of mercy. So Jesus says, look, just follow me you've got a problem with part of your life or all of your life if it's a mess that's okay just follow me right where you are let's just let's just get this thing started and see where it goes no matter where you've been no matter how much of a sinner you are use that phrase at the end for I have not come to call the righteous but the sinners and for some of us we don't like to be called that you know maybe you're hearing think I don't want to be called a sinner that's offensive well, that's a fine, you know, if you want to call yourself a person that's made mistakes or you've had some failures, whatever, I don't care what label you use. But the truth is we are all sinners. I am, you are, we all are. We all miss the mark. That's what sinner means. There's really two choices. You're either perfect or you're a sinner. You are, I am, we all are, let's face it. But here's the cool thing about what Jesus says. He says, that's okay because that's exactly who I've called to follow me anyway. Not the people who are perfect. In fact, you're perfect. Don't follow Jesus. You're fine. But if you, got, if you have anything wrong in any part of your life or your past, then you're eligible to follow. The issue with Jesus has always been not how good are you, but rather the issue with Jesus has always been are you willing to take the first little incremental step from wherever you are to follow? So the question we're going to wrestle with in this series is pretty simple. Are you willing to accept the invitation to follow? I mean, this is what we've tried to be all about as a church. We have a mission statement as a church, and our mission is pretty simple, to make fully transformed followers of Jesus. No games, no religion. Wherever you are, no shame, just follow. That's what we're going to talk about the next few weeks. It's central to who we are. It's central to what Jesus was all about and what he came for. So what I want to do just as we kind of wrap up this introductory weekend is I want to give you four characteristics of Jesus' invitation. Four characteristics of invitation that we're going to talk about, this, this Jesus way, this invitation that he gives us. Next, next few weeks we're going to look at it. But uh, four characteristics. Characteristic number one, it is it is open to sinners. I, mean, I already mentioned that. 
But this means that even if you're not a religious person, even if you're not sure you believe some or even all of this stuff, even if you're not sure you, you, you know, you've got some skeletons in your closet, maybe you've got some entire graveyards in your closet, the invitation is extended to you. Even if you grew up in church and you walked away and you wandered away and you got involved in some things you know you shouldn't have been involved in and then you think, you know what, am I welcome back now? I mean, I knew better and I walked away. I, I, I turned my back on God. Am, is God willing to take me back? And the answer is absolutely yes. Because this invitation is open to sinners. That's all of us. Being imperfect, having a past, having mistakes and failures and junk is a prerequisite. Regardless of where you are or what you know, we're all on common ground. Will you follow? There's a little phrase around hope that we say sometimes to try to describe this, and it's a simple phrase. I want you to try to remember this if you can. Belong, believe, become. See, the church I grew up in, I was kind of taught this. If you believe the right stuff and then you behave in the right way, then you can belong with us. That's religion. That was the way the Pharisees were. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way it works. I want you to belong. Follow me. Be a part of my community. And as you belong, you'll come to believe I am who I say I am. And then you'll become who God wants you to be. So first characteristic is open to center. Second of all, it's an invitation to relationship. That may sound strange, but here's the deal. God knows what we so quickly forget. That one of our deepest needs as human beings is love and acceptance. Love and acceptance actually paves the way for influence. So because your heavenly father loves you and he wants to be in relationship with you so he can influence you to become all that he created you to be. He wants you to become. But rules don't help you become. They simply help you behave. They bring behavior modification. And God is not remotely interested in that. Guys, I want you to think about the things that you do in marriage. I mean, if you've been married 20, 30, 40 years, I want you to think about the things that you do in marriage that, you know, just come up with a list that if somebody gave you that list, you know, way before you were married, when you were single and had no prospects, you looked at that list that you do now, you'd think, I don't know if I want to get married. I mean, because your perception would have been, I got to make myself do all this stuff and that's going to be really hard. My son, Berkeley, a few years ago, he's 13, but several years ago, he, uh, he was home and uh, got, had the stomach flu, got sick, and he had, had, happened to be taking a shower, eating this big dinner of spaghetti and meatballs, got sick in the shower, tried to make it out to the toilet, sick everywhere else, kind of made his way back to his bed. He called for me. My wife was coincidentally gone. Uh, so uh, <laughs> he calls for me to come upstairs, and I go up there, and, and he, you know, it's got, I don't want to give you all the gory details, but he's gotten so sick, it's plugged the drain of the thing, so I'm having to scoop stuff out. It, it's, uh, it was bad. You know, think about that stuff. Think about changing diapers. Think about, you know, going with your family to five days in a tiny hotel room in Orlando, Florida and doing Disney. What I did last summer, 2,370 miles in a minivan with all of them piled in there for two weeks. I mean, you, if you had given, been given that list when you're young and single, you thought, that's what it means to be married? All right, I guess I can do that. I'll force myself. It'll take a lot of willpower. I hope I can do it. I'll try. But then you fall in love and then you have kids you, who you'll do anything for. And it's not like some stuff isn't hard sometimes, but we, we, what we love and we want to please and serve and make people happy the best we can because there's a relationship. And your heavenly Father loves you and he wants you to become all that you can be. And the best way for that to happen is through relationship, a relationship of love and acceptance where there's influence. So if we're willing to follow, you'll discover in time there will be change. In time there will be transformation and freedom because that comes from relationship. The third characteristic of Jesus' invitation is it's disturbing to those who are comfortable with religious routine. We saw that with the Pharisees. 
One of the problems for those of us who have been Christians for 5, 10, 20 years is the longer we're followers, the easier it is to follow into the trap of thinking that being a Christian is about being nice, about being a good person. In the South, you say, being a fine folk. You start to think about following Christ as just being nice, of doing good things. You never miss church. You give a little money. You serve some soup at Thanksgiving. You're just nice. But Jesus came into history and told religious folk, this isn't about being nice. It's not about doing good stuff. It's about every day waking up saying, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. What adventures do you have for me today? In fact, following Jesus is the opposite of religious routine. It is so easy to get into routine and get comfortable. And over time, we just kind of get wrapped up in doing religious stuff, not making a difference, not impacting the world around us. And Jesus comes along and says, let's take a risk. Let's color outside the lines. Follow me. And we go, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's disturbing to those of us who've grown comfortable with religious routine. Here's another way to look at it. You know what kind of people split churches and destroy churches from the inside? Not non-Christians. I mean, non-Christians aren't infiltrating churches secretly. It's Christians who quit following. They're the ones who split churches. It's Christians who are in a routine. And then the leadership of the church decides that God is calling that church outside the box or to take some risks or step outside the comfort zone. And it's disturbing and it's scary. But Jesus says, I didn't call you to be nice. I didn't die for you to be nice. I called you on an adventure, an adventure of following me. Here's a diagnostic question for you that was kind of convicting to me. One of the ways that I can tell that I'm out of follower mode, that, that I'm kind of operating in religious mode, is instead of focusing on all that I don't know and all that I have to learn, instead I begin to look at others and what they don't know and why don't they know what I know and why aren't they where I am yet? And I begin subtly to judge. It's subtle, it's not even conscious, it's, I, I don't admit it kind of to myself. But here's how it plays out. I start thinking these kinds of things. You know, I do X, Y, Z. Why don't they do that? I mean, if only they would do what I'm doing, this would be better. When will they finally get it? I've actually had folks at Hope come up to me over the years and say, you know what? I've seen some folks at Hope doing this or that. You should do a series on this. You know, the leaders of the church, I don't know if you guys are aware this is going on. You should confront them. Never mind what they need to learn, what they're struggling with. It's always my sister-in-law or my, I know a guy or there's a lady who comes here. In other words, as the spiritual monitor for Hope Church, I'm sensing some other people have issues that you need to address. And when I hear that, I think there's a person who's devoted to being nice, to being a fine folk, who's doing religious stuff, church-going, God-fearing person, but they've settled into religion as opposed to waking up every morning on an adventure of following Jesus. I don't want to be, hope to be a church of fine folk. I want to be a church of people who are on an adventure in a relationship with Christ. The fourth characteristic of Jesus' invitation is it's an invitation to life. Jesus used the word abundance over and over. It's full. And here's kind of the way I think of that. Imagine for a moment what hung in the balance with Matthew's decision to follow. Let me give you a little experiment, a little question. How many, I want you to think about this. I want you to make a list mentally of all of the first century tax collectors that you know their names. Just in your mind, make a list of all the first century tax collectors that you know their names. Matthew, and maybe if you've been around church for quite a while, you might throw in Zacchaeus. That's about it. But see, my guess is that Jesus invited more than just two to follow, but only two did, only two accepted. 
But we still, 2,000 years later, name our kids Matthew, although not Zacchaeus. We have a little bit of taste. (laughs) And millions and millions of people have read his version of Christ's life, the gospel of Matthew, and have come to know and believe that Jesus really was the Messiah through it. He had no idea what hung in the balance of his decision to follow. And we, this is really important, we, you and I, have no idea what hangs in the balance every time God invites us to follow. No idea. From, a, from an eternal perspective, what hangs in the balance. I mean, it's scary. There's some unknown. There's some mystery involved. That's part of the adventure of following. But again, you have no idea the, the, the stakes. In my line of work, I get to see some of the horror stories, the ramifications of not following, of not following in a marriage, of not following in parenting or your finances or your career. This week, I also got to see the other side of the stakes involved in following. This was kind of a big week for our family. It's been a busy week, you know, the work stuff, and then we actually had an elder staff retreat Friday evening and overnight and then Saturday. But in between all that, I drove down to southwest Missouri and then northwest Arkansas for a family thing on Wednesday, eight hours down, then Friday, eight hours back. Because my dad, if you permit me to brag on him for a second, my dad was given, uh, he went to a Christian college, Ozark Christian College. He's been in ministry for 42 years. And he was given uh, an award, the Alumni of the Year Award. Um, small Christian college, 12,000 so graduates in their history since 1948. And uh, there's been 64 alumni of the year. And it was a surprise for him. And my mom had orchestrated this whole thing, so uh, he didn't know I was coming. And I picked up my sister in St. Louis who flew in from California, and she went down. My, my two youngest, Ben and Emma, went with us as well. We drove down, and they kind of snuck us in this banquet, and there were 500-some folks there. But my dad, again, didn't know it was for him. And then they started the pictures of kind of the award and his baby pictures, and he started to figure out, and they told his story of his life. And then uh, at the end, they brought him up on stage and they had snuck, the, snuck us in kind of backstage and brought us on and it was, it was a big deal. He was very touched as you can imagine. But they gave him a binder of letters that people had written. They had been accumulating letters for about six months of people who talked uh, about the impact that he had made on their life and I spent some time Thursday reading these and it really, it just blew me away. My, both of my uh, uncles, my mom, my dad's an only child but my mom has two brothers, they're younger and both of them are in ministry, one in Florida, one in Arizona and they talked about the impact my dad had made on their life and ministry. Uh, one of them has two sons there in ministry, one in California, one in New York. There was a story by a guy who was a, had been a car salesman. And my dad had helped him come to know Christ and discipled him and said, I, I see something in you. And he had left that and gone to Christian college. And now he's in ministry, been in ministry in Indiana for 30 years. There was a, a guy who was a college student that my dad had built into when he was in college. His name is Tim Harlow. He's now the, the pastor of a church of about 8,000 people in the Chicago area, in Orland Park. There was a, a little gal, a junior high girl that was at the church. My parents were first involved in a liberal Missouri before I was even born. And later, because of the impact this young, you know, just out of college couple had made in her life, she decided to go to a Christian college herself. She married a guy who became the academic dean of a Christian college. They, their life, they've mentored and shaped hundreds of, of pastors' lives. There's a 12-year-old guy who was in the youth group at one of the churches who who grew up, my dad kind of mentored him. He grew up, went to a Christian college, is now a pastor. And actually, we were, uh, my dad was a pastor, as most of you know, in California, most of our career, his career. And um, when we moved from Los Angeles area to Napa, Northern California, he recommended this guy, younger guy, to come and replace him. And that church is now Shepherd of the Hills Church. They run like 15,000 people. 
And there was a gal who became a Christian in that church. She worked for Blue Cross of California and she transferred to Napa because of a business transfer and, then, and so it was, uh, found my dad at his church there. And through the course of going through a, a difficult divorce and then uh, kind of recommitting her life to Christ and then some discipleship with my mom and my dad felt a call to ministry herself and she left Blue Cross and moved to South Carolina to go to a ministry training school and met a guy there and they got married and she's been in Moscow as a missionary for the last 10 years. She actually flew in for this event. Just seeing these ripples, these ripples, these ripples. But what struck me about the whole thing was as my mom had kind of narrated the story of my dad's life, part of his story was when he was in high school, he had kind of taken his faith not particularly seriously as a lot of us don't do in high school. And there was a story he told about being a senior in high school, sitting on the front porch with his best friend, and he had recently kind of recommitted his life to God and decided to really follow. And he was wrestling with what to do with his life because he was, re- he was sensing a very clear call to go into full-time Christian ministry. And he had a friend who has been his friend since they were kids. He's still a friend. Uh, they've been friends for, you know, 60 years. This friend who said, you know what, I, I really think you're fighting this. And I sense God's calling you, and I think... I think you need to give it a try. And so he said yes to this call on a front porch in a little Carthage, Missouri, a little town where he grew up. He had no idea what was at stake, that tens of thousands of lives have been impacted directly or indirectly as a result of that decision. And don't hear me say that my dad is a perfect guy. I'm his son. I know he is far from perfect. He's had a lot of hard times, a lot of dark seasons, and I don't want you to hear, well, he's a pastor and I'm not a pastor, so I can never have that kind of impact. Because my dad could have said, well, I'm not like Matthew. I'm never going to write a book of the Bible, so I can't have that kind of impact. But see, the point is, we have no idea what hangs in the balance. We don't know how our stories will end. You have no idea what's at stake from an eternal perspective, what hangs in the balance with your decision to follow. So here it is. This is the bottom line. This critical truth. Following Jesus will cost you something, but refusing to follow may cost you even more. I mean, Matthew had to walk away from a lucrative tax collecting business. It cost him something, but not following would have cost even more. And here's the challenge. Are you willing? Are you willing? Whether you've been involved in Christianity for 40 years or maybe you're not even sure you buy any of this stuff, are you willing to say, you know what, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. Okay, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. It scares me. There's some unknown there. I don't know what you're going to ask, but I'll follow. And if you do, you'll find yourself welcomed into relationship, not religion, with your heavenly Father who accepts you just as you are. And you'll find yourself welcomed into community, And that relationship and this community has the potential to transform your life and help you become all that you and God hope for you to be. It will cost you something, sure. But it may cost you a lot more if you say no. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for your call on Matthew because literally tens of millions of people have read your story through his gospel and have come to know you and believe you are the Messiah, the the Holy One of God who came to this earth to die and rose again. I think of the the stakes that were involved in that. And God, um, I'm grateful that my dad said yes and followed. And just reading that notebook this week of the lives who were changed and then have gone on to help change lives and those have gone on to help change lives and just the ripples that have happened over and over and over through the years and I think of my own life and 
my sister in ministry and uncles and cousins and just the impact and the people who you have raised up and who have served and impacted lives here at Hope that I've been able to be a small part of as well. Just the ripples keep on going because somebody just said yes. We just don't know what's at stake. God, help us to see the implications of our decision to follow. Help us to see our, the implications of our decision every day. This isn't a one-time kind of draw a line in the sand kind of thing. It starts one day with a decision to say, yes, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to do religion. I'm going to do relationship. But, it, but it's something that is extended every day of our life. Don't let us get comfortable. Don't let us think we kind of got it figured out. We're just doing the religion thing. But help us wake up every morning to say, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm not going to play the Jesus says game. I'm going to go on the adventure of following you every day. We thank you for your grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.